This conversation on COVID-19 is made possible by Discovery. Hello, I'm Alec Hogg, and welcome to episode 80 of Inside COVID-19. In this episode, I speak to Danny Kay about the way he is leveraging his celebrity status to play a positive role in fighting the pandemic, and we take a close look at how the world is changing tertiary education, perhaps forever, with massive changes on university campuses in South Africa and abroad. Inside COVID-19 from Business. In today's COVID-19 headline, South Africa's active cases of COVID-19 continue to fall. The total dropping to 62,750 on Wednesday. That's one-third of the July the 26th peak. Those infected with the virus are now at their lowest level in two months, with daily deaths also having dropped to late June levels and a quarter of the highest point. After being a regular in the global top five during July and early August, South African active cases are now just 13th on the list of the highest countries in the world, and its daily new infections rank the nation 16th. That's a fraction of the new hotspot India, and behind relatively lightly affected countries like Indonesia, Israel and Ukraine. Globally, there are 6.8 million active cases from a total of 26 million infections, with 866,000 people having died and almost 20 million recovered. Although many companies initially found it challenging when the lockdown forced them to send staff home, actually getting people back to work is likely to be even more so. In the United Kingdom, a government back-to-work call is being widely ignored. A recent survey by the British Automobile Association found that 40% of those who drove their cars to work are no longer doing so, preferring to work from home all or part of the time. Among middle and senior managers, the proportion of those who want to work at home now rises to 54%. The London Sunday Times reported over the weekend that trains are carrying only 28% of their normal passenger loads, and buses also less than half the usual passengers. The newspaper says UK government ministers have made repeated appeals for people to return to work to boost town and city centre businesses. But these are largely being ignored. Illustrating the sea change, one of the UK's leading government contractors, Capita, is closing 100 of its 250 offices, enabling many of its staff to work permanently from home. Capita, an outsourcer whose services include collecting BBC license fees and managing army recruitment, employs 45,000 people. Inside COVID-19 from Business. Well, the COVID pandemic may seem to be on the decline in South Africa, but that doesn't mean that can't protect or shouldn't be protecting ourselves. There's an initiative called Shout for Masks, which was put together by the celebrities Danny Kay and Cabello Mabalani. And Danny is with us. We also have in this discussion today James Force, who's with Vitality, or rather ahead of Vitality Strategic Programs. Danny, 
a number of celebrities have got involved in the pandemic, and it's fantastic to see that you give of your time and, and leverage your personalities into supporting all of this. But what got Chart for Mars started and, and why in that direction? Thank you for having me, Alec. And yeah, I guess a great question. So as an NGO who's been around for the better part of a decade, we began harnessing the power of celebrity and influence, I think spurred on by movements like We Are The World, USA for Africa, that were benchmarks to me personally in in using celebrity currency in the right way. And over the years, whether it was a plea for education and building libraries or it was supporting the police in trying to reduce crime in South Africa, we've always kept our ear to the ground and, uh, and tried to help in some small way wherever we could. So when COVID-19 you know, erupted in South Africa, it just came very naturally to say, okay, we want to try and assist. How best to assist? Who best to partner with? And uh, all of these pieces came together for us in record time in, in, in the period of about a week. And uh, all of a sudden, Shout for Masks was launched. Why Shout for Masks? Why masks in particular? Most of the world, we were shell-shocked by COVID, not really understanding it, knowing where to begin, how best to assist. And masks and PPE were the, I guess, the first global reaction of how we could start to protect ourselves. And the heroes on the front line, the doctors and nurses we were hearing were most under-resourced with masks and PPE. So how did we make an effort? Well, we thought, let's get the doctors and nurses that are really being exposed to the virus the necessary protection. Part of that solution was finding a good supplier who would allow the public to purchase these masks at 0% 0% markup or margin, so we needed cost pricing on PPE, that the public could come in and their money could go as far as it could go, and we could raise as many masks with as little money, essentially, as we could, and spread as many masks across the country as we could. And what's the support been like from the public? It's been absolutely incredible from the public, from corporate South Africa. I mean, we've got James on the line from Discovery And the old adage of build it and they will come really rang true with regards to this website. So in two, three days, we had a website up. We had packs of 100, 100 100 rand for seven, eight masks that the public could step in and buy, donate. And then corporate South Africa jumped on board. And in the period of a month, we had raised, I think, in excess of three, four million rand which was totally amazing to us. We're continuing to fundraise. And now with great corporates like Discovery assisting us, we think as long as this pandemic is around, we'll be there in some small way to lend a hand. Looking back at your website and elsewhere, you've already provided masks to more than a baker's dozen of hospitals around the country. What's What's the update? So now we're actually flying masks in private charters to rural clinics around the country. So we might, yeah, we'll absolutely increase that number probably twofold by just getting it to all these areas that, for whatever reason, our government is being unable to service. So the big hospitals are certainly part of our agenda, but the little guys that are often overlooked, we feel we need to assist which is really rewarding. So we, yeah, as I said, we're flying planes around the country with boxes of masks. 
James Force, you at Discovery with your Vitality program and millions of members have, have many worthy causes to choose from. Why shout for masks? I think it's a cause that's very close to our hearts at Discovery. I think supporting healthcare workers who are a major stakeholders of ours. But as Danny says, you know, they're really the heroes on the front line and we want to do everything we can to support them. Vitality Move to Give allows our members to make a difference. So they can choose to spend their rewards on a charitable cause, such as Shout for Masks, instead of redeeming personal rewards for themselves. So the power of celebrity that Danny and Cabello bring really fits very nicely with how Move to Give works and providing a platform for our members to get involved and support this incredibly valuable cause. How involved have they become? Very involved. I'm always amazed to see statistics of how our members get involved, particularly in COVID times. So from late March through to about early June, the number of members donating to the various causes of Move to Give has more than doubled. I think we've seen an overwhelming response. And this is people giving up rewards, coffees, smoothies, or actually even more valuable things, 100 rands worth of vouchers to go and assist people that they've actually never met. So the response from our members has been truly overwhelming. Danny, from your perspective, what I do like, and I guess many others who, who come across Shite for Mars for the first time, is that you've broken it down. From a hundred bucks upwards, you can make a contribution which is tangible. You know how many masks are going to healthcare workers. Where did that idea come from? I think for us, we needed to show real value and we needed to really make it simple, like keep it really simple. So obviously there was huge inflation in, in mask pricing when COVID broke and that to us was untenable. We couldn't have a situation where one mask was 50 rand as they were trading, you know, a KN95 medical grade mask. So the first thing we needed to do is say, right, find a supplier that's going to get us masks directly from factories, be they local or, or foreign, and have a true cost price benefit on those masks and then build a pack. So we need surgical masks and then a higher spec mask like a KN95 or a FFP2 because both are used in, in, in hospitals around the country. And then we said, let's build a pack, make a pack a 100 rand, for example, and then allow corporate South Africa, if they wanted, to buy silver, gold or platinum packages, offer them Section 18A tax incentives on that money and by that way, we hit the man and woman in the street and we hit corporate South Africa to say, look, your money actually is turning into a physical count of masks. We'll handle all the logistics. We'll get them to the hospitals. And you can do this, as James said, either through your points on the app or simply from your living room by uh, making a contribution on, on our website. So really easy. And I think a lot of people felt very helpless. You know, how do I make a difference it was overwhelming, and this, yeah, this was just a really simple call to action that I think connected with people. James, one of the big problems for corporates endorsing celebrities is that things might go wrong. We've seen that <laughs> happening enough times. Why are you so? Why were you comfortable with Danny Kay as uh, and Cabello as, as being the, the guys you prepared to align with? I think. There's, a, as Danny said, a, a long history of, of working on excellent causes, and, and there's a very strong brand alignment with what Danny and Cabello stand for and what we're trying to do as Discovery. But I think more than that, 
the cause itself is something that's incredibly important. So since the campaign started, Discovery members have raised over 15,000 masks, surgical masks, and over a 1,000 of the highest spec masks. And we think that since our members have been so generous in, in the donating of the masks from a Discovery Fund perspective, which is one of the bodies that funds our CSI initiatives, we're actually going to match all of the masks that our members have donated. And, and we very, very happy to get involved, and hopefully that will make an even bigger difference to this cause. So it's track record and uh, business acumen. You hear that coming through very clearly, and, which isn't something that you always associate with celebrities, James. I'm not, I'm not really how to, sure how to answer that one, Alec. I, I'll, I, answer I that, Alec. I'll answer that on James's behalf. So I think, <laughs> Thanks, that, you know, that it, it takes a village to do these sorts of things. And even though Cabello and I are the face of this NGO, we have wonderful stakeholders and many of them, they go unsung and uncelebrated. And it's quite sad because I get to sit here and talk to you, but you don't hear about a guy like Yossi Hassan who built our website or Mark Shalit from Network BBDO who did all the creative collateral or Emma in his office or Clint. Any of these wonderful people that sit in our brains trust and help connect us with someone like Adrian, you know, who said to me, send Adrian Gore a cold email and ask him if he wants to get involved in Shout for Masks. And I sheepishly did, and here I sit with Andrew and you saying we got Discovery on board. So it's far bigger than myself. I think we just used as the mouthpiece, the, the icing on top of this very complex cake we sit underneath. Certainly by no means it's just us, but I thank Discovery for taking the chance on Shout. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm hope that our decade-long pedigree and the fact that we haven't been on carte blanche uh, you know, <laughs> for the wrong reasons. For the wrong reasons. Uh, yeah, exactly. So what's it like when you visit hospitals? When you do you go along and and uh, and help in the delivery of the masks? We have been. It was a bit scary at the beginning. You know, I think there was a lot of uncertainty. I mean, I'm sure everyone listening can appreciate how scary those early weeks were, and we were like trying to organize deliveries and go to hospitals and they were on lockdown. You couldn't get in unless you were a patient. So it was incredibly difficult. But the hospitals were in such dire need that we were so welcomed, you know, when these masks arrived that it, it was just incredibly rewarding. I mean, we were inundated with emails on a daily basis. One shot for masks was launched from nurses and doctors saying, you know, we're sitting here scared. We don't have masks. And they were as scared as we were. And not knowing how this this virus was contracted, how deadly it was, and I think there's still a lot of that going on. So it certainly was interesting. It's a very good point you make. This is now our 80th episode of Inside COVID. And I remember the early days talking to an intensivist from a hospital on the, in Ikuruleni, and she was saying we know that there's a 20% mortality ratio amongst people like me who work in ICUs. But we're still going to do it. We're still going to get in there. Well, thankfully, that's that's all been addressed. But the courage of these people, uh, also hearing the courage of the nurses who have to handle COVID patients physically. And I guess what you're doing as well is is uh, not only giving them a better chance of not becoming a statistic, but also recognizing what they're doing for the country. That's just incredible. I mean, even when I've been for a COVID test 
you know, since this began, even the, the people in these testing labs that are testing you that don't know if you're negative or positive, just enormous courage. I mean, it just cannot be, you know, said enough how courageous these people are. And what we would do without them is frightening. So for us, yeah, a, a no-brainer to, to try and, and, and make an impact in their lives in, in any way we could. Just for both of you, the fact that the infections have fallen to, well, the active cases today are one-third of what they were at the peak at the end of July. We've also seen the mortalities falling quite significantly thanks to our health workers and maybe some, maybe our sunshine and, and, and that we're coming out of winter at last. But why is a Shout for Masks campaign still relevant in that context? James, do you want to start and, and we can let Danny close off? It's important that we don't get complacent. Globally, we've, we've seen a re-emergence of COVID infections and the impact that has on hospitals and healthcare workers. And we generally have a healthcare system that's under strain in many areas in South Africa. And it's incredibly important that our healthcare workers are equipped not only to deal with the current caseload, but with any future caseload. You know, we don't want to be caught on the back foot. We really need to keep mm-hmm. ahead of this thing, lest the kind of impact is, is something that we aren't able to, to manage as effectively as we have done at the moment. From my side, Alec, I think we're looking forward to the day that we completely shut Shout for Masks down. That would be a great day. We certainly do not want it around forever. We'll be shouting for uh, other causes as the years go on, and we hope Discovery is is there with us. But yes, and to echo James, until it is a thing of the past, we'll be there. And if we're supplying 1,000 masks a month instead of 100,000, we're on the right end of the curve. And yeah, we thank you, Alec. We thank James and the entire Discovery team for helping us. I think the more press publicity after this, the more great corporate giants like Discovery we have in our corner, we can only make more of an impact. Inside COVID-19 from Business. Among the recent highlights of our Inside COVID-19 podcast was when we spoke last month to Free State University Vice-Chancellor Professor Francis Peterson, who shared his thoughts on how he saw universities going into the future. His views of massive change are catching on. Universities around South Africa are compiling new guidelines for faculty and students, and the 2020 academic year has now been extended until February 2021, partly to ensure this year's matriculants are not prejudiced by the late release of results. The summer holiday for students will be a very short one, with the new academic year due to start in March or maybe April. It's all changed too in the United States, where most universities are reopening for the autumn semester. Here's Melissa Korn from our partners at the Wall Street Journal, who takes a look at campus life in the time of COVID-19. All summer, colleges were making plans to reopen. I mean, it was just a massive, complicated logistical challenge that these schools were dealing with. They upgraded HVAC systems. They installed plexiglass. They installed hundreds of gallons of hand sanitizer around campus. They had to buy masks in large quantities. They had to figure out housing so that students weren't, you know, on top of each other. Did they spread out the bathrooms enough so that there weren't people spitting into the sink at the same time when they brushed their teeth in the morning? Every element of life on campus had to be rethought. 
How would you say it's going now that students are actually back? It's been rough at a lot of schools. Rough. Rough, chaotic, confusing, kind of frightening. There are some schools where those plans are working, but there are a lot of schools that have seen holes and weaknesses in their plans exposed pretty quickly. And some colleges have already seen huge outbreaks of COVID-19. A lot of schools are following a similar basic protocol to keep students safe on campus. But there are a few key areas where they've got different approaches, like making sure students don't have the virus when they show up. There are schools that are saying, you know, it's not just enough to test negative right before you come because you could be exposed while you're sitting in that airplane. So you got to test negative on arrival and then again two or three days later and then again two or three days after that. But then you had schools that said, okay, test within a few days before coming and then you're good to go. And then you had schools that say test within a few weeks before coming. Some schools did require you to self-isolate in some way before arrival. Others did not. You had some schools say, show up and let's go. It turns out that these small policy differences have had a big impact. So the schools that were not as strict to begin with, that let students just come onto campus, maybe they had to test once beforehand, schools that didn't require masks absolutely everywhere or where there may be a large part of the student body living off campus, those are seeing case counts rise within a matter of days of classes starting. One school that was less strict with its reopening plan was the University of Alabama. It set up socially distanced classrooms and required masks on campus, but most of its 38,000 students were only required to have one negative test in the two weeks before coming back. And it doesn't seem like enough. In the first week and a half that students were back on campus, more than a thousand people tested positive. Jessa Reed Bowling did four years of undergrad there and is now just starting grad school. Jessa says that during any other year, life at the University of Alabama involves a lot of in-person interaction. Normally, pretty much anywhere you go, it's packed. Normally, everywhere you go, you see so many groups of students just walking around, having fun. The quad is normally packed. People out there playing games and things like that. Not to even mention the football season starting. It's an experience like no other. It's incredible. You know, the stadium, it's over 100,000 people. Jessa was one of the students that had to leave campus in the spring when the pandemic began. And over the summer, she was waiting to find out what the plan would be for the fall. When did you learn that the University of Alabama was going to have in-person classes and what was your reaction? I want to say that it was maybe early July we found this out that we were coming back for the fall. And my initial reaction was shock because I watched the number of cases continuously go up over the summer and it just kept rising and rising. And I thought, surely there's no way that they're going to have in-person classes. Surely they'll announce any day now that they're going to be online. The idea of 30,000 students coming back to Tuscaloosa was something that I never thought would happen. When the university released its plan for reopening, though, Jessa was cautiously optimistic. Then she got to her first class. The class wasn't what actually worried me. It was when I was leaving class and I decided to walk through the quad just to see what it was like because I hadn't been back to really look at what it was like on campus all summer. 
And then I get out there and I see students who are not wearing masks. I see groups of students who are playing games. They're playing Frisbee. They're playing baseball. I, I remember out of curiosity, I counted one group of people and there were about 11 of them. Only one was wearing a mask. None of them were six hmm. feet apart. What was going through your mind as you saw all those students in the quad not social distancing and not wearing masks? So much frustration was going through my mind. It's maddening. It's maddening to see so many people that just seem to brush it off. I know that the college experience is something that everybody wants and it's supposed to be fun. It's supposed to be, to a degree, carefree and you make new friends and you have all these opportunities to socialize. But it's a sacrifice that we all need to make. It's a sacrifice that I thought all of us would agree we need to make mm -hmm. because we love the school and we care about each other. But what happens when not everyone makes the sacrifice? Jessa decided to live with her parents off campus this year, which means she's taking a lot of precautions so she doesn't bring the virus back home. I always wear my mask and my face shield. Uh, you know, if I can open a door with my elbow or with my foot, that's what I'm going to do. And <laughs> it might sound silly, but I even watch how much water I'm drinking because I don't want to have to use any of the bathrooms on campus. I'm afraid mm. to touch anything. I bring my Clorox wipes and I wipe down my desk and even the seat I'm going to sit in. I think that I'm doing everything that I can, and I hope that it's enough. But at a school as large as the University of Alabama, it's not just her own behavior she has to worry about. Here's our colleague Melissa again. Alabama draws students from across the state. They also draw students from across the country, including from some areas where the positivity rate now is just quite high. So you have students from all over convening. You have mask rules in classrooms and certain central areas, but students don't always wear their masks when they're off campus, when they're in houses, when they're gathering. There's also a big bar scene in Tuscaloosa. It's not clear exactly where the transmission is happening, but it is happening. The most recent data from the university showed that on average, around 100 students a day were testing positive, though none have been hospitalized, at least as of Friday. And the school says that what's happening on campus isn't the problem. They're kind of saying, don't blame us. Our policies are really good. It's what the students are doing off campus on their own. The school has said they feel confident that students aren't transmitting the virus in in-person classes, that the masks, the social distancing, the kind of some people in person, some people online, that has worked. But that the real challenge, the real risk is this off-campus transmission. Do you think it was reasonable for colleges and universities to expect that students would come back and not participate in those things? I think it's fair for colleges to expect their students to act like adults because they are adults. That said, you can't expect them to act like monks. Some <laughs> schools have to expect that students will want to socialize. That is a huge part of why they wanted to be back on campus, is to see their friends, to engage in those social activities, their volunteer work, the student newspaper, the drama club, things like that. It's just hard not to. So I think you have to give a little bit of grace to the students, but you also do have to have high expectations for them if this is gonna work. Last week, the university put a temporary moratorium on any in-person gatherings outside of class. And the mayor of Tuscaloosa ordered bars to close for two weeks. What would you like to see the university do? I guess so much of what I want to see them do 
it's too late for because I, I would have rather seen so many more measures being taken before students ever set foot on campus. I can't really blame people for not knowing how to handle a pandemic. I just know that so far, since we're getting over 100 cases a day, what we have been doing has not been working. As cases tick up, Jessa's wondering if staying on campus is worth the risk. Actually, September 4th is the day that we're able to actually still drop our classes and get our tuition money back. So Hmm. it's an idea that I've played with all summer. It's an idea that I still play with, you know, right up until the day I'm counting down the days for how long I have to, to make that decision. I know that there are other students I've talked to who have gotten here and said the cases are too high. I didn't think that they would get this high. I'm leaving. I know that my professors are incredible. They have a great program that I'm in, but I don't know if it's going to change as more students potentially go into isolation, as more instructors potentially have to quarantine. So it's it's hard to say ultimately if it's going to be worth the money. What is it going to take for you to make that decision? I don't fully know. I just know that Whatever decision I make, I'm potentially risking having this huge regret of wondering, did I make the right decision? So every single day, it just feels heavier and heavier. Like a lot of people across the country, Jess is dealing with the gap between the way she wanted this year to go and what's actually happening and how hard it is to keep existing in limbo. People don't want things taken away from them. They want privileges given to them. It's much easier to start with a very tight set of restrictions and then loosen them up as things get better. It's much harder to start college with kind of a bit more of a laissez-faire attitude around student movement, around gatherings, things like that, and then try to tighten up afterwards. It's a lot easier to manage things that way than to start open and then shut down bit by bit. What do you think that the rest of this semester will look like or even into the spring? Oh, my goodness. I don't think we can even think to a month from now yet. It's really hard to predict what's going to happen. But I do think people will start to take this more and more seriously as more schools send students home. So maybe a real sense of consequence might actually get students to start self-policing each other. A sense of consequence, a sense of, hey, this is serious. We really might have to send you home, but also a sense of shared sacrifice, This idea, we're in this together, you're doing this for yourself, but you're also doing this for me. So please don't be selfish, because your selfish behavior could affect all of your classmates. Everybody has to be a part of the solution here. It can't just be setting rules and policies and then crossing your fingers that students follow it. The students really need to understand what's at risk here, what's at stake here. What do you think this says about where America is in the fight against COVID. It shows that we're very much still in the throes of things and that it's still very precarious gains that we're making against the virus. Because a school could be doing very well for three weeks and then something could happen, right? There could be a group of students that travel somewhere. There could be one party that becomes a super spreader event. So we're not in the clear. We have some elements of normalcy, some semblance of normalcy in some areas of our lives, but we are not in the clear yet. And I think what's happening on college campuses really illustrates that in a stark and frankly kind of scary way. This has been episode 80 of Inside COVID-19. 
The full interviews of the highlights that are featured in this podcast are available separately on the biznews.com website or app. Also, by subscribing to Biznews Radio on Spotify or iTunes. Thanks for being with us. I'm Alec Hogg. Until the next time, cheerio. This conversation on COVID-19 was made possible by Discovery.